You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. A preview, I suppose, um, uh, from uh, my forthcoming book. Um, you can see it there on the right, sleeping with the lights on, the unsettling story of, of horror, um, which is going to be published by Oxford University Press in the autumn, in Halloween. Um, uh, on Halloween, as a matter of fact. Um, so this is this is a preview, and the lecture is divided into into two parts, I suppose. The, the beginning is a kind of manifesto for horror. Those of us who spend um, our lives um, uh, reading, uh, watching, and thinking about uh, disreputable and violent uh, uh, films and books that people tell us we shouldn't. And uh, the second half is um, uh, a sort of sense of where we are today. What, what, is, what is horror today? Um, in other words, this is, in effect, the beginning and the end um, uh, of, of the book. Um, I toyed with the idea of giving you the full um, 18 certificates uh, uh, lecture, but we are before the 9 o'clock watershed, and many of you will just have had your lunch. Um, uh, so this one is certificate 15. But still, Certificate 15. Intensive Horror, Part 1. A human eyeball shoots out of its socket and rolls into a gutter. A child returns from the dead and tears the beating heart from his tormentor's chest. A young man has horrifying visions of his decomposing mother's corpse. A baby is ripped from its living mother's womb. A mother tears her son to pieces and parades around with his head on a stick. These are scenes from the notorious band Video Nasty Films. And the Video Nasties were a series of controversial violent VHS releases banned in the United Kingdom and in Ireland uh, under the Video Recordings Act of 1984. Eaten Alive, Zombie Flesh Eaters, I Spit on Your Grave, Anthropophagus <laughs> the Beast, and Cannibal Holocaust. Well, no. They could be, but they're not. All these scenes and images that I have just described to you can be found in any bookshop, safely inside the respectable covers of canonical literary classics in the works of Edgar Allan Poe, M.R. James, James Joyce, William Shakespeare, and Euripides, and here they are in their full, respectable Oxford University Press editions. Only the first two of these, Poe and James, are avowedly writers of horror, and none of these books comes with any kind of public health warning or age suitability guidelines. What's going on here? What is the relationship between culture and violence, between civilization and violence? Uh, this was the question in my mind that led to the writing of this book. 
you take the text on the far right here, Euripides, the Bacchae, first performed around 400 BC. It's one of the foundational works of the Western literary canon. In describing graphically the actions of Agave and her Maenads, dismembering King Pentheus, here he is being dismembered, being literally torn to pieces, um, and while under the frenzied influence of the god Dionysus, and then ending up by putting his head on a pole, the Bacchae also sets the bar very high at the very beginning for artistic representations of violence and gore. In other words, the spectacle of violence is encoded in art from its very beginnings. Paleo-historians, historians, historians of, of early humanity, have argued very plausibly that the capacity to make art is one of the distinguishing, the crucial distinguishing features of humanity and a very significant evolutionary advantage. In my role as, as, as Dean of Arts, Humanities and Social Sciences, one of, the, one of the questions I keep asking is, what's the point of the arts? What good are they in society? And, and I, I'll read that sentence again, because this is the answer. The capacity to make art is one of the crucial distinguishing features of humanity and a very significant evolutionary advantage. Homo sapiens made art. We survived. Neanderthal man did neither. It's likely that Greek tragedy, such as uh, the Bacchae, and perhaps all art, uh, has its deep origins in ritual. The great anthropologist Clifford Geertz usefully defines ritual as consecrated behaviour and suggests that elaborate or public religious rituals might best be thought of as cultural performances, simultaneously providing both models of an external or social reality, they reflect reality, and also models for that reality, they shape reality. Um, and I'll be returning to the ritualistic elements of horror uh, throughout the talk. But for now, I want to give an example of the interweaving of culture, religion, and horror. And this is really where my thinking in this book, my thinking on this subject began, is watching one film, this film. Pier Paolo Pasolini's Medea of 1969 is a free adaptation of Euripides' tragedy of the same name, directed by a major European filmmaker and intellectual, Pasolini, and starring the legendary operatic diva Maria Callas in the title role. There she is. It is, in other words, unmistakably a high cultural artistic product, deeply influenced by Pasolini's own studies in anthropology, mythography and religious history, and by his Marxist politics. But this is art house cinema, and it's definitely art house cinema. This is art house cinema, red in tooth and claw. Shot in the beautiful, unearthly volcanic landscape around Gorome in Cappadocia, Turkey, the film opens with a sparagmos, a graphically rendered ritual sacrifice. And there it is on the right. A young boy is killed and dismembered. His blood 
and body parts cast over the land in order to assure its fertility. In travelling to the ends of the earth, to Colchis, in what is today Georgia, to retrieve the Golden Fleece, the film suggests, Jason is also symbolically travelling back in time to witness the origins of civilization itself in a religion of magic, ritual and human sacrifice. Jason takes Medea back with him to Corinth, the city-state of modernity and intrigue, and these scenes are filmed in Pisa. Uh, but Medea carries the primal world within her. She lives beyond the polis, outside the city walls, and this enables her to summon up the appalling forces of vengeance, some of you may recall the, the, the myth of Medea, um, in order to kill her own children. So the film's opening episode of Human Sacrifice is unquestionably a shocking scene in itself. But for certain viewers of horror cinema, like myself, it's also a disconcerting one, as it clearly prefigures both aesthetically and thematically some of the most controversial films ever made. Medea's Sparagmos, its sacrifice, clearly resembles or anticipates a number of scenes of ritual human sacrifice and dismemberment um, from Ruggiero Diodato's Cannibal Holocaust from 1980, which we've already seen, um, Umberto Lenzi's Cannibal Ferox from 1981, and a number of other Italian cannibal movies of the late 1970s and early 80s. Unlike Medea, all of these films were banned under the Video Recordings Act of 1984. Cannibal Holocaust, in particular, has an infamous place in popular demonology as perhaps the archetypal video nasty. It is a film so powerful, and for many so unacceptable, that its director was arrested and tried shortly after its release, on charges not only of obscenity, but also of murder. As the authorities initially refused to believe that the film's scenes of violence and torture could possibly have been staged. They were, incidentally. Um, and Leodato, the director, was acquitted when the actors involved were revealed to be alive and well. <laughs> the episode of the baby ripped from its mother's womb, to which I alluded in, the, in, the, in, the, in my opening words. Um, this is from Macbeth, of course. It's Macduff's account of his own birth, untimely ripped from his mother's womb. And Macbeth, though certainly no slouch in the mayhem department, isn't even Shakespeare's most violent play. That would be Titus Andronicus whose opening scene makes the connections between civilization and horror very clear. The origins of civilization are in violence, ritual, are violence. Ritual and other forms of sacred violence are used to channel otherwise uncontrollably violent, destabilizing urges into socially licensed forms. At the beginning of Titus Andronicus, Tamora, the queen of the Goths, sees her own son brutally killed by the conquering Romans. And these are the lines. See, 
Lord and Father, how we have performed our Roman rites. Alabas, that's the sun, Alabas limbs are locked, and entrails feed the sacrificing fire, whose smoke, like incense, doth perfume the sky. And what follows is well known. Further mutilation, rape, cannibalism, the full Jacobean panoply. Shocking, yes. Surprising, I would say no. After all, the greater part of the Western literary tradition follows or celebrates a faith whose own sacrificial rites have at their heart symbolic representations of torture and cannibalism, the cross and the host. A case could plausibly be made that the Western literary tradition is a tradition of horror. This may be an overstatement, but it's an argument with which any honest thinker has to engage. Now the classic argument in defence of the brutality of tragedy, a form which I've come to think of as highbrow horror, is the Aristotelian concept of catharsis, which you may be familiar with, according to which the act of witnessing artistic representations of cruelty and monstrosity, pity and fear, purges the audience of these emotions, leaving them psychologically healthier. Horror, in other words, is good for you. I confess, I mean, while I want this to be true, um, I've always had difficulty accepting this hypothesis, though I would acknowledge also that many people far more learned and brilliant than I am have no trouble accepting it. Um, it seems to me to be a classic example of an intellectual's gambit, a theory offered without recourse to any evidence. And yet, and yet, catharsis seems to me to be far preferable to another more common response to horror, the urge to censor or ban extreme documents and images in the name of public morality. If catharsis is Aristotelian, then this hypothesis is Pavlovian. Horror conditions our responses. A tendency to watch violent acts leads inexorably <coughs> to a tendency to commit violent acts. For many people, this makes intuitive sense um, on more than one occasion. I've noticed people sort of slowly backing away from me when I've told them that I'm interested in horror. I write about horror. Yes. And this is also the impetus behind the framing of the Video Recordings Act of 1984, after which Cannibal Holocaust and all of those other video nasties were banned. This, these are moral panics. These are folk demons. They must be banned because they produce uh, responses that are too dangerous. As a number of commentators have noticed, noted, there's no evidence for this Pavlovian <coughs> hypothesis either. Worse than that, there's a distinct class animus behind such thinking. You and I, cultured, literate, educated, middle class folks, 
that we are, are perfectly safe. When we watch Cannibal Holocaust, which I do, even if you don't, <laughs> we know what we are seeing. We can contextualize the film, interpret it, recognize it for what it is. The problem, the argument implicitly goes, is not us, it's them. Those festering, semi-bestial proletarians whose extant propensity for violence, always simmering just beneath the surface, can only be stoked by watching these films. That's why no one seriously considers banning the Bacchae or Titus Andronicus. Why any suggestion that we do so would be treated as an act of inexcusable Philistinism. They are horror for the educated classes. Horror is unquestionably an extreme art form. I would call it an avant-garde art form. And like all avant-garde art, I would suggest, its real purpose is to force its audience to confront the limits of their own tolerance, including, emphatically, their own tolerance for what is or is not art. Commonly, when hitting these limits, we respond with fear, frustration, and even rage. Even today, this is not an unusual reaction on first reading Finnegan's Wake, for example. I see it occasionally in my own students who are A, voluntarily students of literature, and B, usually Irish, not to say actual Dubliners, throwing the book down in rage and fear and anxiety. Um, you know, we've all encountered you know, this sense that this isn't art, this is rubbish. This is an affront to public morality. But we need to recognise that the reasons for doing this are complex and are deeply bound up with the meaning and function of art and of civilization. Horror runs very deep and is part of what we are. Where is horror today? I want to stress the cultural proliferation of horror and its plurality. Horror is tentacular, spreading everywhere. It's protean, taking many forms. It manifests multiple personalities, and has been put to many uses, <coughs> made to suggest or articulate a variety of positions, ideologies, arguments, and worldviews, not all of them consistent and some of them downright contradictory. While some, including myself, would, would argue that horror is at its most powerful when it's at its most confrontational, violating taboos, flowing over boundaries, antagonizing respectability, 
There is no doubt also that some of the finest horror shores up traditional worldviews is very conservative. But some more of the finest horror comes from the margins. It arises out of the peripheral, the regional, the provincial, the neglected, the discarded, from Wuthering Heights to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, occluded identities insist on their presence. Some is deliberately cheap and shoddy, an affront to aesthetic as well as moral and social norms. It is the product of single-minded, bloody-minded, independent filmmakers or reclusive, autodidactic writers who seem to be trying to remake the world but are really addressing only themselves or perhaps a tiny handful of cultish devotees. And I want to start on one example of this kind of cultish writer, somebody who's received a lot of attention and continues to receive a lot of attention. And the classic example of this kind of writer is the great American pulp writer H.P. Lovecraft. Lovecraft writing in solitude in Rhode Island and barely noticed by any cultural establishment during his own lifetime. The great ghost story writer M.R. James, the most establishmentarian of horror writers, was scornful of Lovecraft, maintaining that his style is of the most offensive. And it's easy to see why. Lovecraft is, by any traditional literary standards, the author of some of the worst prose ever committed to print. Squamous, gibbous, eldritch, obscene, hilarious, tenebrous, cyclopean. You never get very far into his writings before coming across a characteristically purple Lovecraftian adjective. When I started teaching H.P. Lovecraft to undergraduate students in the 1990s, one of the unexpected pleasures of doing this was getting the class to compare our various editions of the stories in creased and dog-eared velvety paperbacks from forgotten publishers, each with a more lurid cover image than the last, something like this. Whatever Lovecraft was, he was not respectable. Um, I should say that I think The Tomb is probably my favourite um, of those covers, but they're all great, aren't they? But not respectable. Today, however, 20-odd years later, Lovecraft's work is wide, works are widely available in editions published by major academic and commercial publishers. Impeccably edited, edit, sorry, impeccably edited, annotated, and introduced, sometimes by distinguished university professors. Here's the, um, here's the Oxford and the Penguin Classics editions. Uh, and in 2005, on the far right, the Library of America the great national canon-making institution, published its edition of his works. H.P. Lovecraft has a 
arrived. Uh, so just to give you a sense again, respectable, not respectable, respectable, not respectable. <coughs> like all processes of incorporation, the canonization of Lovecraft is double-edged. Recognition means respectability. And respectability is the very thing much horror exists to confront. But academic respectability, whatever we academics may think, is a largely harmless affair. More troubling is the incorporation of horror within consumer culture. This is, of course, not a qualitatively new phenomenon. Like all forms of popular culture, horror has often eagerly sought its own marketization. But the accelerated incorporation, incorporation of marginal identities since the millennium threatens the depoliticization of horror and has led to the creation of a type of horror which has no possibility of ever being horrifying. And I want to call this unhorror. <laughs> unhorror resembles horror and deploys, often in very self-conscious and accomplished ways, many of horror's tropes. Its vampires are better looking and have sharper fangs. Its metamorphoses are seamless, deploying computer-generated imagery to transform its monsters in a way which comprehensively outdoes the attempts of a previous generation of makeup and visual effects artists. Its monsters are bigger and more destructive. From the city-wasting kaiju of Cloverfield in 2008, Pacific Rim 2013, or Godzilla 2014, to the most recent iteration of King Kong, Kong Skull Island of 2017, which I sincerely hope you all saw, whose giant ape is at least twice the size of the 1933 original, and, we are told, still growing. With the success of Twilight, I've suggested, horror became totally incorporated within capitalism as a vehicle for marketing, including the mass marketing of itself. Such post-twilight unhorror falls firmly within the purview of what the philosopher Theodore Adorno once called the culture industry. Like pre-digested baby food, to use Adorno's own <coughs> metaphor, it is art which does the thinking for its audience, and ideally allows no space or even the possibility of opposition. As such, it is not disturbing or scary, except perhaps to a Marxist. Indeed, the critic Catherine Spooner has identified a contemporary mode which she terms happy gothic, suggesting that, and I quote, contemporary gothic can increasingly be termed as comic romantic, celebratory, gleeful, whimsical, or even joyous. And Spooner is quite correct here. 
and her analysis of this phenomenon is smart, illuminating and nuanced, closing with an assertion of her belief that there remains a space within contemporary Gothic for, and I quote, a counter-narrative in which the tastes of women, children, teenagers, queer and subcultural communities are of particular significance. Who could argue with that? And perhaps, yes, any identity can ultimately be commodified. But what's missing here for me is any sense that this contemporary Gothic is horrifying. Anything horrifying about Twilight? Can it be that a comic, romantic, celebratory, gleeful, whimsical, joyous cultural mode has replaced one which is obnoxious, rebarbative, confrontational, grotty, transgressive, nasty, and dangerous? If so, we've lost much, if only temporarily. It's customary in, in overviews like this to survey the current scene uh, of one subject and pronounce upon its multifarious complexity, as though this was some radical departure from a smoothly univocal tradition in the past. Um, I've tried to show that horror has always been complex, multifaceted, contradictory, and at its best, troubling. Nevertheless, any attempt to capture the contemporary state of horror can only remark on how disparate it all seems. A viewer of mainstream Hollywood horror cinema in the early 21st century might well have concluded that the genre, in this manifestation at least, was creatively moribund, bankrupt, dead. Cinematically, the US film industry seemed content to allow younger directors to plunder its back catalogue of horror films in what seems like an endless recycle of sequels, remakes and reboots, a corporate production line of horror, a wasteland. Most particularly, American cinematic horror revisited landmark films of the 1970s, the key decade for, Americans, for American horror, in a 2016 Time Out Experts poll of the 100 best horror films, six of the top ten were from the 1970s, and a further three from 1968, 1980 and 1982, so bunched around the 1970s. The only one in the top ten that was from outside of this was, was, was Psycho. There were, for example, remakes of The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, in 2003. Here is Toby Hooper's uh, a monumentally horrible 1974 uh, original, a film so dangerous that it was banned and when it was given um, a, 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 a cinematic release in the late 1990s by the London Borough of Camden, it was only to be shown in one cinema in London. That was the only place in the Anglophone Western world that you could see the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. This film was perceived to be so dangerous, uh, and it's one of my, um, my, my, my um, uh, lasting reasons to be grateful to Trinity College Dublin that I, I applied for a small research grant um, in, the, in the late 90s to go on a, on a visit to London to see the Texas Chainsaw Massacre in the only cinema in, in London that it was being shown at at the time. 
It was a wonderful experience. So there it is, the 1974 Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, and its, its 2003 remake. Uh, also remade were The Hills Have Eyes, Wes Craven's uh, uh, 1977 uh, film of um, hillbilly cannibal survivalist family. Uh, very interestingly, uh, both The Texas Chainsaw Massacre uh, and The Hills Have Eyes deal with sort of neglected rural or marginal redneck or hillbilly families um, suffering from economic and cultural disenfranchisement who turn to cannibalism. Uh, and here's its 2006 um, uh, uh, remake. Also remade amongst many others was Carrie, um, the great Brian De Palma film of, of 1976, which I know you've all seen, um, and which actually, unlike um, uh, the other films I'm talking about here, actually stars people you've heard of. Uh, you know, um, Sissy Spacek, John Travolta, uh, for example. And it's, it's 2013 remake, which also stars people you may have heard of, Chloe Grace Moretz, Julianne Moore. So this is, this is at the respectable end um, of what I'm talking uh, what I'm talking about here. Um, and even, uh, unbelievably, uh, two of the most notorious films in the ultra-controversial rape-revenge subgenre, uh, Wes Craven's Last House on the Left, uh, was remade in 2009 uh, uh, to avoid fainting the original 1972 uh, films that uh, keep repeating it's only a movie, only a movie, only a movie. Um, and also, I spit on your grave. I've already shown you the uh, uh, poster for I spit on your grave, so I'm not going to subject you to that again. Some of these 1970s films, in and around their original release, were viewed as genuinely dangerous cultural artefacts, drawing the horrified gaze of legislators, judges, censors, cultural commentators, and the media. Their post-millennial counterparts tend to come and go unnoticed because they don't matter. Whatever we may think of them, these 70s originals were marked by a kind of demonic energy made by filmmakers operating far from the mainstream with a great singleness of purpose and vision. These films were at least honestly sleazy. They even had, in their appalling way, a kind of integrity. While some of these films may have been reprehensible, they were not quite indefensible. Oh, I just wanted to show you this. Um, uh, this is Gaylord St. James, uh, the uh, 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 star of uh, Last House on the Left, um, as, the, as the, um, uh, the, the patriarch of a middle-class family who, who takes to violence and um, uh, dispatches his, his attackers with a chainsaw. I really just wanted to show you this because um, it, it amuses me greatly that there is an actor out there called Gaylord St. James. Gaylord St. James, everybody. Oren Pelly's Paranormal Activity from 2007, which again many of you may have seen, was the most successful horror film of the 21st century until the release of It last year. In profits to budget terms, this is perhaps, Paranormal Activity, perhaps the most successful film of all time. Viewed in isolation, the film is an exemplar of post-millennial unhorror. 
It relies on a found footage technique, uh, which following the success of the Blair Witch Project in 1999 has been overused in horror cinema to the point of cliché. And Blair Witch itself, though undeniably brilliant, had adapted its own found footage technique from Cannibal Holocaust. It began a self-recycling franchise, which has produced six films to date. There's nothing distinctively contemporary about this, this franchising. Uh, nor is this inherently problematic. This element of repetition is an important component of the ritual aspect of horror. And the notion of a cinematic horror franchise goes back at least as far as the Universal Studios in the 1930s. But viewed in the context of a horror cinema which seemed to have run out of ideas, this repetition may just be another sign of creative bankruptcy. Paranormal activity is also the foremost exponent of the cinematic technique which is most characteristic of post-millennial unhorror, the jump shock. Long periods of silence punctuated by loud noises what the film critic Mark Kermode has termed the quiet, quiet, bang technique. Um, of, of, of cinematic horror. And this is undeniably effective. But as a dominant aesthetic technique, it is neither terror nor horror in the way that these terms have come to be understood. Anyone can sneak up behind you, shout boom very loudly, and make you drop your ice cream. But this says nothing about the state of your soul your place in the universe, the social function of violence, the evils of political inequality, nor any of the other serious questions that horror is accustomed to asking. And to begin to close, where finally is horror today? The location of horror moves with culture. Uh, I've argued we may be seeing signs that it is moving with geopolitics away from the American axis, from an American axis. Many of the great horror movies of the 21st century are Asian or Hispanic. It may also be that in our concentration on horror's traditional media, fiction and film, we've been, if not looking in the wrong places, then certainly not looking in all the right places. When it was released in 1992, Fran Rubel Kuzui's film Buffy the Vampire Slayer received mixed reviews and passed without much notice. Unsatisfied with both the film and its reception, its writer Joss Whedon tried again, adapting it for television. The first episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer was broadcast on March the 10th, 1997, with Sarah Michelle Gellar, an authentic 90s screen queen, in the title role. In that very same year, 1997, she also appeared in the neo-slashers I Know What You Did Last Summer and Scream 2. Looking back from the perspective of 20 years, it's tempting to view this moment, the arrival of Buffy, as marking a tectonic shift in American horror, if not in American culture, 
playing over seven seasons from 1997 to 2003, Buffy developed into a work and a world of considerable complexity, intelligence and imagination, the very antithesis of the risk-averse, compromised, moribund condition of much mainstream cinematic American and horror around the millennium, which seemed incapable of surprising or delighting its audience. Buffy also came into being with the internet, and so its success was greatly augmented by the rise of the blogosphere and by, an on, by the online culture of fandom. It also captured the academic imagination, the sub-discipline of Buffy studies, yes, there is one, combining institutional academic criticism and theory with fandom and unlicensed criticism in the public sphere has produced a small library of often very sophisticated cultural and textual analysis. Buffy was one of the early signs that the millennial generation was experiencing what is often characterised as a, or the, golden age of television. From The Sopranos, 1990-2007, to The Wire, 2002-8, to Breaking Bad, 2008-13, to Game of Thrones, 2011-18, and much more besides, the medium has shared much of its cultural inferiority complex relative to film. For example, first broadcast in 2013, Hannibal took the continuing story of our great modern demon to creative heights, seemingly foreclosed to film versions after Brett Ratner's unforgivably lumpen 2002 adaptation of Red Dragon. With seasons entitled Murder House, Asylum, Coven, Freak Show, Hotel, Roanoke and Cult, American Horror Story, first broadcast in 2011, engages with the satisfyingly familiar tropes and locations of horror. The Louisiana set first season of True Detective, 2014, drew explicitly on the history of American weird fiction, most particularly with its references to the lost land of Carcosa, originally to be found in Robert W. Chambers' The King in Yellow and in the works of Ambrose Bierce. However, from a historical perspective, this golden age of television might come to be viewed as a last gasp. Certainly, it is a product of the moment in which the dominant cultural medium of the second half of the 20th century, television, began to be subsumed within the dominant cultural medium of the 21st, the internet. So, finally, to close, what might authentic internet horror look like? One place to look might be in podcasts, um, such as the hugely enjoyable fake radio show Welcome to Night Vale, or the riotously inventive Down Below the Reservoir. The brilliance of these podcasts rests on the rather 20th century notion that they are produced and controlled by highly creative auteurs, Joseph Kink and Jeffrey Craner for Night Vale, Graham Tugwell for Reservoir. Another distinctive internet product, meme culture, 
has the potential to be altogether more decentered and anarchic. It may be uncontrollable. Here is one example. On June the 10th, 2009, a pair of photoshopped images appeared on Something Awful, a comedy website and online forum. Credited to, credited to Victor Sewage, the photographs showed two groups of children photographed in black and white. In the background, blurred and indistinct, was a tall figure dressed in black and seemingly with tentacles for arms. This was the Slender Man. Beneath the images were these captions to the image on the left. We didn't want to go. We didn't want to kill them. But its persistent silence and outstretched arms comforted, comforted us and surrounded us at the same time. 1983, photographer unknown, presumed dead. And to the image on the right, one of two recovered photographs from the Stirling City Library blaze, notable for being taken the day which 14 children vanished, and for what is referred to as the Slender Man. Deformity cited as film defects by originals. Fire at library occurred one week later. Actual photograph confiscated as evidence. 1986. Photographer Mary Thomas. Missing since June 13, 1986. Lacking any kind of central controlling narrative, beyond a vague but palpable sense of menace and threat, particularly to children, the Slender Man took on a life of its own as a self-replicating, evolving internet meme recurring first in user-generated creepypasta, online fiction and art, and in YouTube videos, video games, and more generally as an elusive cultural reference. On May the 31st, 2014, two 12-year-old Wisconsin girls stabbed a classmate 19 times after a night reading online Slenderman creepypasta. They did this, they said, in order to become the Slender Man's servants, or, in the language of the internet, his proxies. Fears that the Slender Man seems capable of infecting reality and transforming it have led to the most recent of horror's ongoing series of moral panics. The case went to trial in September 2017. The defence attorney claimed that the girls quote, swirled down into madness together. The defendants, Morgan Geezer and Anita Wire, were sentenced to 40 years and 25 years in mental hospitals, the maximum sentences possible for their respective crimes. It falls on each generation, then, to create its own monsters. Or at least its own unique iterations of 
monstrosity. There is a good reason why vampires cast no reflections in the mirror. It is because what looks back at us is ourselves. We invest in monsters, our own anxieties, but sometimes our own desires also, inarticulable in respectable social discourse. Monsters body forth our dreams and our nightmares. The internet is too vast and too fast for a lecture of this length or for a book of any size. It has given horror an infinite library in which to play, an endless labyrinth in which to hide. The Slender Man is its most distinctive monster thus far. He is the scariest thing in ages. But there will be others. <laughs>